0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome here, especially some uh, guests and visitors. There's a few I haven't met yet, and um, I hope I'll grab you at the door or something and say hi. My name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and it's uh, just a joy to be able to worship with you and uh, and pay attention to what the, the scriptures are saying and God is saying to us through them today. You know, just one thing before we start this morning. Um, we had a great third service last week. It was our first sort of launch of a, of a new service. And I was just so encouraged. We closed the balcony upstairs so that, but then the base, the bottom here was just totally full and it was just a beautiful thing. So, uh, thank you for all, all your prayers and, and, uh, working toward that together as a community. It was a really wonderful time. You know, last week I was sitting at the dinner table with our youngest son, Adam, who's six years old. And, um, well, Catherine and was, had just taken Connor to the hospital with a potential broken arm. He is fine, by the way. You don't have to ask later. Um, That's just raising boys and kids in general. Uh, But, you know, as Adam and I were eating this meal together, we we started talking about the sermon series, actually. He started talking about screen time. He said, Daddy, didn't we make a commitment at some point? Now, these are not his words, but something like this. Didn't we talk about how we weren't going to, like, look at our phones for one day of the week? I'm like, oh, uh yes, our six-year-old is holding us accountable to our commitments around screen time, which is awesome slash really stinking convicting. And so I asked him, so why do you think we should do that? Why is it important to you, Adam, without flinching? This was his, I was was not ready for this. This is what he said. So we can just have a day to worship God, to focus on him, to not be taken away from that. Now, six years old, he didn't word it quite like that, but that was the message. And so I had this proud dad moment, like, oh, my son, my son. That's beautiful. I love it. And at the same time, this sense of, oh, wow, we've talked about this, and I haven't been great at keeping this commitment. My kids know that we all benefit when we make intentional steps to personally connect in a screen-free screen free sorts of ways. And so that's what our Tech Wise series is really all about, is to say we're going to live with God's wisdom in a digital age. And last week, just a quick recap, last week I was arguing that, arguing sounds like a paper, it wasn't a paper, by the way. Although I have had one person say, that was a great lecture, Dave, after a sermon, so I'm working on that piece. All right. I talked about how living in a, Digital age means living in a distracted age. The big ideas were basically this, that we will need God's wisdom coupled with a lot of courage if we're going to make wise decisions about how to live in an age that is just vying for our attention all the time. We're going to need to come at this with a posture of humility, and openness, ready just to say, God, how how do you want us to live in this space? And we're going to need courage because of this. Uh, when we begin to make you know, really good decisions and choices on this, we're going to have to say these kinds of things to our kids and to ourselves, but we're not like other families. We're actually making some different decisions around these things. Two practices that we talked about last week were this. So that we can focus and listen to God, have these times of attentive prayer and study, I suggested that you do your quiet time with God, your time of reading the Bible with a physical Bible rather than a Bible app, and put your phone off or in another room. Because it's designed to distract you, it will distract you when you're trying to read and you're trying to pray. And I know that because I've tried to do that and it doesn't work. (laughs) I'm distracted. I've got emails coming in. I've got things that are vying for my attention. And the second take home was very simple but profound. Eat together. Eat together whenever possible, with your family, with your housemates, with those in your life, have a device-free meal around the table. That is the time for connecting, for discussing. We'll talk more about some other good boundary stuff next week, but if we do those two things, we are going to foster a deeper connection with our Creator and with those He's created us to be in connection with. Simple suggestions, but profound, I think. And today, we're going to dive into another area of connecting. We are built for connection, and at the cornerstone of connection is communication. That's what we're going to look at today. Um, we know that communication is not just the transfer of words from one voice to an ear. We know there's so much more involved than that. It's a whole process of sending signals. Uh, yes, verbally, but also through our body language, our posture, our eyes, our tone of voice. We communicate far more than just our spoken words or typed words. Now, psychologists, they debate how much of our interaction is actually just our words and how much belongs to our body language and tone of voice, etc. But they would say maximally, or at, at the far end, only 7% of our communication is the words we say. The other 93% being our tone of voice, our body language, our gestures. That's high. That's a high number. I don't know. I mean, the data was collected by a psychologist who was doing work on business and sales. So, does it apply to all our other relationships? I'm not sure. But I do know this our bodies matter for our communication our voice, our tone, our gestures. And with the rise of digital communication, where our, our physical bodies and our voices are often less and less involved it leads to two key factors I want to talk about today. One is the increase for potential misunderstanding and confusion and miscommunication. And two, it becomes easy to dehumanize the other, to see those that we're communicating with as less than fully human, to lose sight of their dignity. And so this is something that just happens often. When people come to me for pastoral care and counseling, that kind of thing, and I'm talking with them about what's going on in their life, so much more often it's, well, there was this text they sent me. And then whatever the original issue was gets blown out of proportion and confused and complicated by poor digital communication. Uh, Text messages that are confusing, taken wrongly, that aren't responded to. With that lack of lang- uh, body language and tone, there's parts of the, vision of the communication process that are simply lost when our physical bodies aren't in, it, when they're not present. And so, I, so, that's one of the issues that we're going to look at a little bit, is that why our bodies matter in communication. But two, I'm not alone in my concern about how social media conversations, if we could call them that, are so often not just uncivil but downright vicious. Here's a quote from Tim Keller, ironically, from Facebook. Uh, Technology has, in an enhanced way, given mockers a platform to set society on fire with polarizing speech. Internet culture privileges those insults, pardon me, privileges those whose insults are clickbait. It disadvantages the civil, respectful, patient dialogue that brings diverse people together. And that is true. And so one of the issues that we face in a digital age is that when we look at people and events through the mediation of a screen, whether it's a a computer screen or a phone or devices, it is too easy to see others as less than human, to criticize unfairly, to just scroll past people. So I think we have to consciously and actively work against dehumanizing factors, And if we're going to do that, it's going to have to start with us personally making some big choices. And perhaps one of the most significant dehumanizing factors is actually our speech. So this morning, we're going to talk about rehumanizing our interactions, especially focused on communication. Let's just pray as we do. Father, I am just so incredibly grateful that you inspired the biblical authors to write down the truth of our relationships and how we connect and learn from you. And we ask, Father, that you would open our hearts to hear everything you want to say to us through the text that we study, and Lord, that you would give us courage to live with wisdom in an age that's often distracting. Speak to us now in Christ's name, amen. So the book of James in the New Testament um, has many features that are similar to the Old Testament wisdom literature. It draws lots on the Proverbs and actually has um, uh, the same kind of uh, tone and rhythm to it as the book of Proverbs does. It's a wisdom book as well. And um, the one thing that's different than the wisdom books, however, is that it specifically is writing now in light of the coming of Jesus. And so we're going to focus in on, and and we looked at last week, that Jesus is the wisdom of God in a body. He shows us what God is like. So I'm going to ask you to open in your Bibles to James chapter 3, and we're going to start reading at verse 7. James is speaking about words and how we use them. He says this, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by humanity, but no human beings can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, pause for a second. That is quite a statement It's like James is saying to all of us, actually, to some extent, that our tongues can also be implicated in that restless evil of hurtful words. The kind of words are full of deadly poison. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul quotes from the Psalms, and he quotes a number of Psalms that deal specifically with our words and our language and then Paul does something very interesting. After he speaks about deadly poison is on their tongues, etc., 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 then he says this, and guess what? That's all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So either James is exaggerating for effect, or he means this quite straightforwardly. Like none of us can say, no, James, you know what? I, it's just not me. See, I've always used my words in ways that respect the dignity of others. I have perfectly tamed my tongue. And I think his reply would be, yeah, really? <laughs> so he continues, verse nine. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness and in the image of God, who are made with that dignity and worth. Out of the same mouth come praises, praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt water produce, or a salt spring produce fresh water. James points to the big problem. With our mouth we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, and then we curse the people who are made in the very image of that God with our next breath. When we're honest, we are implicated by this word, at least to some extent. Yes, James says our language, unfortunately, is a source of dehumanizing of others. My words have been like that. But James isn't fatalistic in his response. He doesn't shrug and say, well, there's nothing we could do about it. I guess we just have horrible tongues. No, he says this, my brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be, and it shouldn't. But he doesn't end there either. His plea isn't, well, just stop it then. No. He knows there's something internal that has to shift. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? And the answer is a rhetorical one. And that rhetorical answer is no, they can't. So the solution, he actually tells us next in verses 13 to 18. Let me read that. And it all revolves back around wisdom. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. Also, don't deny the truth. If it's there, just be honest. Be real about that. Such quote-unquote wisdom, man, that does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom, but, ah, I love that word. Karl Barth was a theologian in the middle of the 20th century, and he said, but might be the most important theological word in the whole Bible. This is true, that's true, that's true, but it's not the end of the story. There's more to say here, and there is, and it's good, good news, but wisdom that comes down from heaven it's first of all pure then peace loving considerate, submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace they're going to reap a harvest of righteousness so he shows us this contrast, this so called wisdom that just is coming up from the earth and it's, when, it, when I say the earth he means from the broken human heart that is deceived by the enemy himself. But there's another kind of wisdom that comes from outside of yourself. It, you don't look inside. If you look inside for wisdom, you're not going to find it. Sorry, folks. The wisdom that comes down from heaven, he has a name. His name is Jesus. And if he doesn't come and transform a heart, then we have no hope. So here's what James says. James says those who are wise will show it by their deeds that come out of humility. And humility is recognizing that we're going to need that heavenly wisdom to transform our hearts if it's going to come out in a way that syncs up with God's ways. So the so-called wisdom that's simply a, a, a reacts It's an initial impulse of the heart that's not submitted to Jesus' leadership. That is gonna end, James says, in selfish ambition and disorder of every kind. And I don't have to argue that point. That's like one point I never have to make. Do you guys know that the, sorry, let me try that again. Um, I don't have to argue that disorder comes from our words that spring from hearts that are just, being fed something other than the word of God. You know it. I see it. You see it. Sometimes it actually comes out of us too. So the question is, how do we gain this wisdom from heaven? Jesus himself, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.24, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus embodies God's wisdom. Jesus, who is God himself, lives out God's wisdom perfectly. He is pure, peace-loving considerate, submissive to his Father, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That's exactly what we see when we look at the life of Jesus. And for those who trust in Jesus, who have put your hope there, who know you need to be forgiven, and you've taken his life into yours and has transformed you, you know that through faith in him, our hearts begin to beat in sync with like, we, we want peace loving. We want sincere. We want considerate and kind. We don't want the envy. We don't want the selfish ambition anymore. We want, as Colton said this week, as I was talking with, you, he said, "Jesus' love changes our calloused heart and softens our calloused lips," and it really does. So gaining wisdom in the end doesn't come by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and being like, "I gotta be more wise." No. It comes from a humble recognition that Jesus needs to change my heart. And when he does, I can put aside the selfish ambition and actually begin to take up a whole new pattern of life. Ray Orland puts it like this. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. i say that again. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. And I see it in so many of you. I I love that that's what God is doing. That's what wisdom is doing in you, beautifying your daily lives. Many of you have trusted in Jesus in this way and you're seeing that fruit come to bear, but I wonder if there's some who are here today and maybe you're like, I'm not so sure yet if I'm really gonna put my full weight on what Jesus has done, if I'm really gonna step into this life of discipleship with him, if I really can trust that what he did on the cross and in his resurrection was enough, I'm gonna ask you today, if, if you haven't put your trust there, what is stopping you? Because this is hope. This is life. Jesus is the one who can change and transform you into a person who brings glory to him and who has your relationships now reconnected. He is all about fresh starts. Would you put your trust in him today? You can. So you see there's this contrast. We can respond out of that place of selfish ambition and it leads to chaos and disorder. Or we can be peacemakers who sow in peace and reap righteousness. Question for us now, if we really want to apply that wisdom to our life is, how? How do we become those peacemakers? And just before we talk about that, I want to thicken it up with just one objection. Because I can imagine some of you thinking, okay, well, like, what about just being authentic? What about being real, right? Right? Eric uh, Thonis is the professor of biblical and theological studies at Biola University. And at the beginning of each course, he asks his students to write down two things they love and two things they hate, okay? Consistently, one of the things they say they hate is fake people, okay? So we live in an age where authenticity is one of the highest values. I'm sure you've seen that and heard that in your world. What, but what people often mean by "authentic is that they feel like they're truly expressing their feelings and they're being true to what they feel. Uh, Thonas continues his point. He says, "There's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy, but that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy to live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel. That's not hypocrisy, that's integrity. Let me say that in my own words a little bit. If you say hypocrisy is like if I feel this and I live out of accordance with my feeling, that's hypocrisy. It's not, actually. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is that these are my commitments, these are my beliefs, to live out of line with those... And to say, oh, yes, I'm committed to this, but then actually live out of line with it, that's what hypocrisy is. Um, For the Christian, here's what this means. Being authentic, and I actually believe in being authentic. I want to be real, okay? But being authentic means pursuing the holiness of God, like letting my character be formed and shaped to look more like Jesus as I allow the Holy Spirit room to work in my life even if that means recognizing that some of my feelings are actually deceptive. And not only are they deceptive, but sometimes they're even evil. That's just true. Like, for example, when my kids are being outright defiant of me, I've said, okay, guys, please don't do this. And then the next thing they do is they just run and do it. It happens occasionally. Meaning all the time. (laughs) If I say stop doing this and... And then they just go ahead and do it. I have this feeling that rises up inside of me. And the parents are going, yeah, I know the feeling. Um, I could easily burst out in a fit of yelling. Am I being authentic to recognize that emotion but then stop myself? Pardon me, am I being inauthentic if I recognize that impulse in me but then I stop myself from acting on it? Not at all. In the same way, self-control is needed in all areas of our life. And that includes our communication, not only with our children, but in every other space, including digital spaces. Well, I just said what I was feeling. I was just being honest. I was being me. Okay. But is expressing our honest emotions really wise all the time? Having integrity, again, is living in line with my commitments, not just my feelings, So I do have to recognize my feelings. Let me speak to that for a second. I have to be aware of what's going on inside of me. I have to be able to name it and and, and think through it. Absolutely. I want to be in touch with my feelings, for sure. And we may also need to share how we feel with others uh, in a constructive way. And this often comes out like this. When you said this, I felt this. Man, that is a positive, constructive way to talk about our feelings with others but we don't have to express our feelings in hurtful and harmful ways. That's not authenticity, that's immaturity. We can expect that from a toddler. We can expect a toddler to express their emotions frequently and loudly, but that's not how the wise, that's not how the peacemaker responds. That's where prayer comes in. I can pray my anger to God, I really can. I can express it to him, that's helpful, And a healthy outlet, in fact, make the Psalms your prayer book, and you'll find on your lips a lot of praying your anger to God. That's the right place to take it. And then after you've prayed your anger to God and let him speak to your heart, then you can address the situation, which you may actually still be angry about. But you do it from a place of response, not reaction. I can be clear and direct to address the issue at hand, but not blow up, turn sarcastic, or be rude. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, do not sin. Notice he doesn't say, don't be angry. No, you know what, anger is just an emotion. Uh, It can arise for a number of different reasons. Some of them are selfish and petty. Oftentimes that's that's the case. But other times, however, we feel angry because we see an injustice against someone and to not be angry about it would itself be wrong, See, the Bible never promotes being stoic. It doesn't just say stiff upper lip, come on, be unmoved. Never talks like that. So anger, Paul says, is inevitable. It can at times even be warranted and necessary. But here's what Paul does say. In your anger, do not sin. See, it's all about response. If I trust the sovereign living God actually has this situation in his hands, then I can respond to that out of faith in Him. I'm not freaking out. I can trust that He will be just in all His dealings. And so I put my anger in His hands. Then the question is yeah, am I responding out of trust in God or am I responding out of a need to control the situation or the people within it? Do I believe that the living God, that His pattern of peacemaking, of seeking to courageously communicate with clarity and kindness? Do I believe that I know better than he does about that? Or will I trust that if I put his ways and make them my ways, I'm actually going to see good fruit from it? So it becomes a matter of faith at that point, too. Do I believe God and his ways? Let's look at how Proverbs 12, 15 to 16 describes this. He says it this way, the Proverbs writer. The way of the fool seems right to them, but the wise men, they hit pause, And they're going to listen for advice. They're not just asking their own heart, heart, what do you feel like doing now? They're going, no, actually. I'm going to listen to some advice from others. Fools show their annoyance at once. But the prudent, they can just say, you know what? I'm just going to overlook that one. And then verse 18, the words of the reckless, they pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So I want us just to consider for a second. And this is on your, um, on your handout. You'll see there's life group questions. If you're not in a life group, we'd love for you to be plugged into one. Harry mentioned that before. But even so, even if you're not in one and you just want to use it this week in your quiet time, your reflection, I encourage you to do so. I'm, I'm asking you to reflect on that in that verse as well. And here's what I want to ask. How do these verses speak to how we communicate? Like if we tend to speak more harshly, um, in an online interaction because we've dehumanized it, what might these verses lead us to do in terms of our practices for online messaging, texting, or posting on social media? That would be a great question, just to sit and reflect with a bit this week. Like I said, in my experience, I see an increasing number of conflict situations arise as a direct result of people venting in text messages or being vague or manipulative or just playing cruel to others. The original issue is often overshadowed or, or blown, uh, blown up simply because of harmful communication. And so it compounds rather than works to solve issues. So what can we take from James and the Proverbs this morning as some practical, like we're gonna, we talked about practices last week. What are some practices that we can w- run with this week? Number one, um, if you need to communicate something that is or even could be taken as negative or critical, especially if it, it's easily misunderstood, Man, I just avoid sending it in a text message or email or on Messenger. Especially don't post it on a social media thread. Why? Number one, remember, James warns us off of praising God out of one side of our mouth and cursing humans who are made in the image of God on the other. A, that lack of integrity is destructive to human relationships. And it's inconsistent with the Christian faith, which seeks to live out God's wisdom in every facet of life. See, it's, it's too easy to see, to say things in a digital format that we simply wouldn't say to somebody face-to-face. Because, again, that medium of computer screen or, or phone, it just makes their humanity harder to see. When we speak face-to-face with people, we're far more likely to see them as they are, and our bodies are now involved in the communication process. Our eye contact, our gestures, our tone of voice. The chance that our communication will actually be much more clear just rises exponentially when we do. So best practice, if we want to honor God, even if it's hard words that we need to say, I think best practice is face-to-face conversation. If that's not possible, at least a phone call. Emails are great for getting business done. I'll send emails all the time to people. Whenever we're just doing business, awesome. Text messages are amazing for like sending grocery lists to your wife when she's at the store right now and for setting up appointments man i love it i love technology for that ability to communicate in those ways dealing with conflict building relationship no those belong in somewhere else those belong in embodied spaces face to face is especially important if there's a crucial conversation but i think we would do well actually to move most of our communication if possible out of a digital format and re-embody it in our communication as a whole. So here's one specific application. Last year, we did a series called um, uh, Single Dating Engaged Married. We were borrowing from Ben Stewart's excellent book by that topic. And he talks about just the challenges that young adults are facing in, in like the dating world today. He says it's way more complicated than it used to be. Uh, in a New York Times article, David Brooks describes how the process of finding a spouse has shifted deeply in the advent of a digital age. He says this, the rules of courtship have dissolved. They've been replaced by ambiguity and uncertainty. Cell phones, Facebook, and text messages give people access to hundreds of friends, and that only increases the fluidity, drama, and anxiety. As a part of describing the way forward, then uh, Ben Stewart notes a nationwide survey that was done in America in 2012. And it found that only 12% of women initiated a date during that year. So whatever you think of who should initiate dates um, or that kind of thing, women or men, I don't really care what you, th- like, what we think about that's neither here nor there. But here's the deal. Uh, women preferred that men initiate. That's just a fact that comes out of that survey data. Whatever you want to do with that, do what you will. But here's the thing. They always preferred that it's done in person. Not even by phone, definitely not by text message. They preferred way more consistently that it was done in person. There's a lot of great stuff about clarity in that book as well around intentions like, I would like to take you on a date. Would you like to go with me in person rather than, hey, you want to hang out? What, What does that mean? This tells us something that's really key. Anx- ambiguity causes anxiety, clarity is kind. Say it again, ambiguity causes anxiety, and it does, you're like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. What should I think about this text? I, I don't know what it means. Causes anxiety. Clarity is kind. Kindness is a fruit of the spirit. If we want to be kind to people, let's aim to be clear with people. That's the challenge for young adults or those who are dating Be brave, talk in person. Next point. Assume that if you send it digitally, it will be made public. Really? That sounds awfully cynical of me to say, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's true. Diamonds are forever. So are emails. If you wouldn't want what you're writing right now to be shared publicly, don't put it in an email or text message. Because you might think, oh, well, the person I'm sharing it with is integrity. They're going to keep a confidence. Maybe. Maybe not. And so assume that if you write it and it goes onto a digital space, that will be made public one day. You think, wow, what what do I do with that? Okay, a couple things that the Proverbs speak to this. The Proverbs speak about gossip in this way. It says a gossip goes about telling secrets. But the one who's trustworthy keeps a confidence A perverse person stirs up conflict. A gossip separates close friends. And a gossip reveals secrets. Therefore, don't associate with a babbler. Of course, these warnings come two directions. One, we need to be people of integrity who can keep a confidence. When someone says, can I tell you something in confidence? We say, yeah, sure, as long as it doesn't have to do with abuse or something I have to report to the police. Sure. And we should say those things too because we need to be honest about that. But two... We need to be cautious about whom we speak with about important private matters. And in both of those cases, the digital world compounds these issues. It just does. Three, social media, as we noted off the top, often rewards those who are the most brutal with their words. So how should we use our words online? For the wise, those who want to be peacemakers, they aim to build up, not tear down. We would use our words to bring healing, not wounds. Proverbs 15.4 says, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. So what does this look like? How, does, how do we apply wisdom in this sense? Um, I've got a few points here. Number one, ask, or A, pardon me, <laughs> ask clarifying questions rather than assuming that you know what someone means. You read something online and you go, oh man, no. This is key for communication. When you said X, did you mean Y or Z or something else entirely? Help me to understand what you're saying here. Seek to understand before being understood. Listen intently. Don't jump to conclusions or comments even. Proverbs 18.13 says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Listen first. Um, I've seen my friend, one of our worship leaders here, Justin Hansen, he does this really well in his online interactions. I, I've seen him ask clarifying questions. Did you mean that? Um, just help me understand this. And he's addressed like difficult topics with kindness and a desire to bring peace and understanding. I think he just gave me a great example, and, and, and I know that it can be done because I've seen him do it so well. Second thing, pick your battles. Guess what? Not every input, or Not every issue needs my input. I'm learning that. Uh, As we read the Proverbs, there are some discussions where we just have to discern, would making a comment, is that just going to draw us into the folly of others? Proverbs 21, 24 says this, The proud and arrogant person, mocker is his name, behaves with insolent fury. In social media language, the word is troll, I recognize, but whether troll or mocker, getting locked in a debate with that person And you will end up on the other side of insolent fury. I have. I don't like it. (laughs) Here's the way forward. It is to one's honor to avoid strife. But every fool is quick to quarrel. So sometimes you have to just decide not to comment. Sing to yourself that song from Frozen. You know, it starts, let it go, let it go. And then quote yourself the Proverb 21, 23. Those who guard their mouth and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. C, don't attack people. Address ideas. The lowest and basest form of any sort of argumentation is is simply to attack the other person. Rather, they just simply address their ideas. This is called an ad hominem argument, or against the man, is what the Latin translates to. That's the wisdom of the world. It functions like that. It's about attacking people. That's not the wisdom from heaven. D, seek to be healing and life-giving in your words. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only, whoa, the only words that are to come out of my mouth are these ones. Ready for it? Only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. Yeah, it might benefit you to say it for you, but what about them? What's gonna benefit your hearers? For those who are called by the name of Jesus, this is our calling to bring life with our words, to benefit those who listen. I love this proverb, 1624, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. I want to end just talking about one quick thing, about missional implications. If you are a follower of Jesus at this point, then you have been given the task of joining God on mission. For many, the hypocrisy Of Christians is the stated reason why they don't want to connect with the body of Christ, and they even feel that they would doubt the truth of the gospel. They say, Well, I see Christians claiming one set of ideas and beliefs, and then I see them living out a different thing. On the one hand, the Christian faith actually says, All have sinned, no one's perfect. We all need forgiveness. So for someone to look at a Christian and say, ah, look at, they sin too. Yeah, that should be no surprise. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying, I never sin, and then sinning. Okay? That's the hypocrisy. But just saying, like, I'm a believer. These are my commitments. Sometimes I don't live up to my commitments, but I'm going to ask God for forgiveness and you for forgiveness, and I'm going to seek a new way forward. That's the Christian response. It's called repentance. That's what Christians do. So it shouldn't shock anyone when a Christian blows it. But on the other hand, there is some merit to the objection to the Christian faith. If Christian people act and speak without wisdom, and they never seek that forgiveness and new ways forward, that is simply inconsistent with Jesus. And we're called to represent Christ to the world around us. That calls for deep wisdom in all spaces, especially the highly public world of digital spaces. Again, Orland puts it so well. If we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best of intentions. If we have courage without wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology without wisdom, we'll use the best communications ever intended, invented me to broadcast stupidity. But wisdom knows how to spread the gospel with no embarrassing regrets. Now, it's no secret to most of you that um, Pastor Harry can't type very well or fast. He'd probably tell you he can't type at all. And so when it comes to communication, Harry uses a phone like all the time or he visits in person. But even if he could type fast, I think that he would continue to prioritize face-to-face time or at least a phone conversation if a meeting isn't an option. I love that. I think that has saved our staff a lot of miscommunication over the years as he's been leading us. He has done a great job of setting the pace for having good, fully embodied, face-to-face conversations. I am seeing the value of that grow in my mind and in my heart and in my practice because it is becoming more and more common for my generation especially simply to say, oh, I don't want to call that person. I'm not going to talk to them in person. I'll send them a text. And I'm going, man, I actually want to connect with you in person. I think there's something beautiful. There's something that actually connects us far deeper than we could do just in a digital sort of space. I'm not going to stop texting people. It's great, like I said, for setting appointments. Emails are great for getting business done, but we need better ways of connecting if we're going to really build deep relationship and community. So today we've seen that wisdom, those who are peacemakers, that's going to come from a place with Jesus at the center, keeping his wisdom at the heart of the heart, That will rehumanize our relationships and it will bring glory to God who made us for rich connection. Let's pray. Father, I just, I'm so thankful for this, the words of the Proverbs that teach me about how to communicate well. And Lord, I haven't always communicated well. And I just thank you that your forgiveness is there. And for those of us in this room who are feeling conviction on that level, we thank you that uh, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, make us a people who are wise with our words, who are reflective of the heaven-sent wisdom of Jesus in the way that we connect. And, Lord, if there's someone here today who maybe has been standing on the edge, looking in, looking in at you, Jesus, looking in at what it might mean to follow you, and they're ready today, I just... Maybe they would pray something like this with me. Lord, I thank you that you are my creator and sustainer. I acknowledge that I have I've missed the mark I really have in my words and my actions. And God, I, I want to come to you for forgiveness today. I want to come to you for new life. I want relationship with you restored. I want your promise of eternity. Forgive me. Make me new. I want to follow you with my life. Lord, we thank you that as we trust you, you make us new from the inside out. You transform us into people who look more and more like we were always created to. So Lord, speak. We thank you for your wisdom from heaven. We give you thanks this morning. Amen.